Hello, and welcome to the Canopy Boulder podcast, where we talk about the intersection of entrepreneurship and investing in the legal cannabis industry. Each week, we'll give you our perspectives on the latest news in the industry, bringing you insightful interviews with entrepreneurs, investors, and the industry pros, and also go deeper on topics like launching a business, building a team, valuation, and pitching investors. Why would we take on such a challenge? Well, we've helped launch 80 companies into the cannabis industry here at Canopy Boulder and made over 100 individual investments into these companies. So you might say we have the inside line on things. So join us as we take you deeper into legal cannabis and uncover all the nuances of starting up and investing in the cannabis industry. Hi, my name is Patrick Ray. I'm the co-founder and managing director of Canopy Boulder, and welcome to our Canopy Boulder podcast on exits. Uh, joining me today is John Gaddis, a partner at KO, a law firm in Boulder, Colorado, that we've been working with from the beginning, right, John? It's been it's been a while. Yeah, I don't want to say how long. It makes yeah. me feel older, but yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> Um, and uh, KO has been a fantastic resource for Canopy and uh, a lot of the companies that have come through the program. John, how many term sheets uh, have you written in your uh, career? <laughs> uh, a lot. A lot. I will probably now in the thousands, I would guess. Right, uh, yeah. right, right. So, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, how uh, you came to be doing what you're doing? Sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Really appreciate it. Um, so... I uh, grew up here in Colorado, went to law school away, you know, went to law school in Michigan, the University of Michigan, and wanted to come back because it is a phenomenal uh, business ecosystem here in Colorado and in Boulder specifically. Uh, It's, you know, with what's going on now in various industries, including sort of the ancillary cannabis space, there's a ton of activity. This is sort of the, you know, this is the hub for that. Mm -hmm. And... uh, uh, so I, you know, I, I enjoy working with entrepreneurs, oftentimes helping them in the biggest financial transaction of their lives. Right. Right. And that's something, and it's, it's an honor sometimes, you know, to, to do that mm-hmm. and to become sort of a trusted member of their team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me, uh, I enjoy, you know, I enjoy helping people sort of achieve their, their goals. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's really true what John's saying that these are big decisions, right, uh, that not only affect you professionally, but personally. Um, And it's the the, the best advice that we can give anyone when they're thinking about launching a business, they're in a transactional situation with a business or an exit, is to get really good legal counsel. Not your divorce attorney, not your trusts and estates attorney, right? But a corporate lawyer, a lawyer who's doing transactions and a good volume of transactions because the the, the changes happen regularly. Yeah. You know, these yeah. documents are evolving. And if you're working with somebody who is not in the mix, in the flow constantly, you could miss out on something that could have a big impact on the result. Yeah, I think it's really important to get sophisticated help. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have to find folks in a team who, you know, if, even if you're not a uh, $200 million company, yeah, um, who treat you as a priority. Yeah. Right? 
Um, and so, you know, again, it comes comes back to find someone who one is is experienced and and, and works in the space a lot. But two, also someone who understands sort of how your blood, sweat, and tears have gone into this business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, specifically with respect to an exit, mm-hmm. that this is probably the biggest financial transaction of his or her life. And oftentimes it's one of the biggest things they've ever done in their life. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, so sort of understanding that and the stress that can come with that yeah. and being someone that, that, that works well with, you know, you want to be... Find somebody that you work well with and mm-hmm. that you enjoy working with because yeah. you are going to be working with them quite a lot. Yeah. And I think especially with an attorney in these uh, situations, you know, sometimes, you know, you think, oh, I need a bulldog. You know, I need somebody to go in there and, you know, uh, break break everything and then uh, have it come back together. And, and the truth is, I think, you know, my experience and a lot of our entrepreneurs' experiences have been that to find a, uh, a legal counsel who can be... Uh, politely confrontational and move forward through there's always going to be issues that people disagree on but to to find somebody who has that sort of art they understand the art of moving through conflict to end up on the other side together is is something you're looking for it it, it is a bit of a collaboration yeah right transactional work is you're trying to find solutions that work for 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 the seller yeah but you also have to understand that, look, the buyer's not going to do this deal if they're not comfortable. Right. So you've got to sort of collaborate. Okay, okay, I understand that you know the buyer's concern on these issues. Here's our concern on these issues. Maybe this is a way to skin the cat and both of us sort of yeah. achieve our goal. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. a really important part of transactional practice. Yeah, and I'll have to say um, our experiences with KO and all the members of the team there has been excellent. So um, let's Thank get you. into the meat of this thing here. Sure. Uh, so first things first. Uh, legal. Yes. Yeah. This is. I am not offering legal advice. This is. <laughs> this is information. Yeah, yeah. That may be helpful, and I, you know, encourage everyone who is thinking about selling their business or is actually in sort of in the process of selling their business, find find someone that you work well with as far as legal counsel uh, to help you through the process, because you know this is not. This is general information. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Okay. So John has broken down. Uh, the content we're going to go through in a couple of different sections. So let's first start with the pre-LOI diligence. So engaging a financial advisor. Talk mm-hmm. to me about that, John. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, investment bankers or sort of financial advisors um, oftentimes will help a company market, you know, market itself to potential buyers. And I think it oftentimes makes sense for companies who are thinking about trying to sell to engage an investment banker. Um, it makes sense to have legal counsel in place to help negotiate that investment banking engagement letter, because I think oftentimes legal counsel can really help you understand as a seller what's market, and uh, because you are going to, you know, investment banking fees are not immaterial. Correct. In my experience, investment bankers typically pay for themselves and then some. Mm-hmm as far as driving a process that brings in multiple bidders. And if you've got multiple bidders, that's a great place to be as a seller. Yeah. Uh, and that means that you're going to get sort of top price. Uh, and so I do think that there's a real utility to hiring a good investment banking firm. Um, but find somebody that's got relevant ex- expertise, mm-hmm. whether you're a software company, whether you're a manufacturing company, whether you're an ancillary cannabis company, mm-hmm. find somebody who works in that space who knows who the buyers are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then make sure that the compensation incentives are aligned so that um, oftentimes 
I try to steer my clients away from compensating the investment banker for earnouts. Yeah. Or at least minimizing the incentive for the investment banker to get you an earnout. Because if you're getting an earnout, you know, that's not guaranteed cash in your pocket on day one. And we want the investment banker to be incented to try to get as much cash for you or equity for you and the successor entity as possible on day one. Right. And and just so for the audience, an earnout is a part of a transaction where uh, usually it's performance based or time based where it's often a tool used to um, bridge uh, the expectations of the buyer yes. and the seller on the value. Yeah, yeah it's used as a, to bridge the valuation gap. If the seller thinks, hey, my company is worth $20 million, and the buyer thinks, well, this company is only worth $15 million, mm-hmm. then oftentimes you can say, well, look, we're going to do $15 million of cash at close, mm-hmm. and then the other $5 million will be payable over the next, let's say, two years if you hit certain EBITDA, if, if, the, if the company hits certain EBITDA metrics. Right, right. Um, and again, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not a big fan of, of earnouts personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that I pretty heavily discount them when I'm mm-hmm. trying to come up with what is the actual consideration payable for this business. And so what 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 my thought is with respect to financial advisors is in, incent them to try not to to push an earnout and instead just to try to push upfront consideration. Right on. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to the second point: confidentiality. Right. This, when there's a deal in process, man, if you, if you don't keep it uh, in, in the inner circle, a yeah. lot of things can get go wrong. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you, you don't have a deal. You, you haven't closed a deal until you've closed the deal. Right. And so one of the things you have to be really careful about is who within the company should know about this mm-hmm. transaction or potential transaction, because you don't want to scare people. You don't want to scare your employees into thinking, oh, something something is is oh, happening. There's huge, huge distraction, yeah, right? It's, it's a distraction. The water cooler becomes a whole. They're not talking about uh, what was on TV last night. Right. It, it's about their futures. And I think that there's concern. You know, oftentimes uh, employees will say, well, gee, if I'm going to get bought by this bigger company, is there going to be a spot for me? And and you want to keep your team members through the transaction at least, right? And so uh, uh, just be careful about who at an early stage is aware of, of uh, the potential transaction. I think the other thing to be careful about is if you're entering into this, so that's sort of internal confidentiality. Mm-hmm. I think you also have to think about external confidentiality, mm-hmm. which is I don't want to give, you know, I don't want to sort of uh, uh, show them what's under the kimono, so to speak. Mm-hmm. If they haven't signed a non if the buyer hasn't signed a non-disclosure agreement, I don't want to give the buyer a bunch of confidential information outside of a non-disclosure agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so make sure when you're talking about you know at a high level, buyers may you may not need to have an NDA with the buyer. But once you're sort of discussing specifics with respect to your business, make sure you have an NDA in place with that buyer because mm-hmm. God forbid that the buyer is just doing a fishing expedition. Yeah. Right, and the buyer the buyer comes in and 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 sees sort of what your secret sauce is, and then tries to replicate it themselves yeah. without you. Yeah. So that's something to be careful. Righto, righto. Okay, diligence. Diligence. Yeah, diligence is really time consuming. Yeah. And I think that most founders don't have any sense as to how intrusive and how much time it takes. Um, one of the things that I would encourage any founder or any uh, C-level person running a company who's thinking about, hey, in the intermediate term, I may sell my business, is ask your, you know, ask your lawyer for a due diligence 
checklist yep. to see the kinds of things that the buyer's going to ask to see. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and then you can sort of plan and say, well, hey, I'm looking at this diligence request list. They're oftentimes seven, eight, 10, 12 pages long. Yeah. And you can say, you know what? We don't have these things. We should get these in place. You know, getting in place uh, in, uh, proprietary information and invention assignment agreements with your employees. Right. Buyers are going to expect to see that. Unfortunately, a lot of times companies may not have that system in place. Right. So seeing a diligence request list, even if you're not in sort of the throes of a transaction, sometimes has some real benefit in you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really informs what the, I mean, what could be next month, few months, half a year, year, who knows how long it goes, what your life's going to be like. Yeah. And, it, and I think it really highlights the importance of a strong team, right? You know, and then a team that can keep this information, this process confidential, um, going back to those confidentiality issues. Yeah. You know, one other thing on confidentiality, um, sometimes sellers, even if you've got a signed uh, LOI, are skittish to get, to turn over um, the 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 most important uh, customer lists, mm-hmm. um, things sure. like that. Sure. And so one of the things you should work with your counsel on is the uh, buyer is going to require to see that before mm-hmm. they close. Yeah. But is there a way to say, hey, we're going to hold off mm-hmm. on, sending, on, on giving you this specific piece of really, really highly proprietary information mm-hmm. until we're even further down the process. Is there a way to sort of anonymize those lists? Do you see that happening sometimes? You do. And 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 that's one of the ways that you can try to s- sort of skin that cat is you say, look, we're going to give you a list of our customers, mm-hmm. but instead of, you know, as and, and the revenue that's generated from each of these customers, but instead of the actual customer names, it's going to be customer one, customer yep. two, customer three, yep. customer four. And then, you know, typically the buyer will say, that's fine for now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But once we are, you know, right about to sign this thing, we yeah. need to know who, the, who these people are. Very fair. Very yeah. fair. Anything else on diligence? No, I think, you know, the only, I guess the only other thought is, is make sure you have a good accounting uh, uh, sort of back office and maybe even accounting expertise yeah. outside of your company because uh, you want to make sure that you've identified if there are any accounting issues and, and had a chance to correct those. Yeah. Um, because what you don't want to do is you don't want to sign an LOI where you're going to sell your business for 7 or $8 million. The buyer comes in, does financial diligence, and says, you know what, you have dropped the ball. Your, your, your financial uh, uh, accounting and statements are not tr- are not accurate, right. and now we're just going to give you $4 million for, yeah. for the company. Right? Yeah. So, so make sure that you've got some accounting expertise as well. Yeah, John, really quickly, you know, the core team uh, is generally legal counsel, yes. investment banker, yeah. Uh, CEO, C-level team, mm-hmm. and uh, are you bringing in tax, tax planning? Uh, uh, yeah, oftentimes your attorney may have that background, have that, yeah. but um, oftentimes I would I recommend that you keep your accountant, mm-hmm. your outside accountant surprised, and, yep. and ideally your outside accountant also has some, some expertise and experience, right. and they can be a resource for you through this process. Right. And I think uh, having the conversation with the accountant that, hey, we're thinking about selling, do you want to, you know, do you want to take a look at this stuff? And you know, you're not going to ask them to do a sort of a full-blown quality of earnings, right, probably, right, right. depending on the size of your company. But it's but, good to know that if they recoil yes, <laughs> when yes. you say that, yeah, you, you may have an issue. <laughs> you might have uh, a conversation. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, regarding just one one quick thing that, that you said that I, I want to clarify. Uh, you don't have to have an investment banker yeah, yeah. to sell your business, right? I think an investment banker makes sense if you are thinking about, hey, I 
I want to start a process. Uh -huh. I want to see if I can dredge up six or seven or eight or ten potential bidders. Yeah. Um, it may not make sense to hire an investment banker if there is one party who sort of approached you, you know sort of what the valuation is that they're offering you, and it's in the ballpark mm -hmm. of what you think is acceptable, mm -hmm. right? Then you may say, well, gee, it's not. it doesn't make a ton of sense for me to hire an investment banker, maybe, mm -hmm. um, because I've sort of already got the deal. Yeah, you know? and, and you know, and sometimes I, you know, one of my first job, well, I think my first job out of college was doing investment banking, mm -hmm. and uh, two things I'll say is, one, I quickly realized the how much the lawyers actually do. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought as an investment banking team, we were sort of, you know, going to be preparing documents and all that, and not <laughs> yeah. at all. Yeah. You know, yeah. the 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 key player, the person or the team that was shouldering most of the load yeah. on execution was the legal team. And and you know, uh, from an investment banking standpoint, I totally agree with you. Um, if you don't need one, you don't need one. But um, it's think of it as sometimes like a sports agent, right? If you're yeah. an athlete, somebody who's going to go in and negotiate, especially if you expect to be continuing on through the deal, mm -hmm. it's nice to have someone who is going to maybe push some of those harder conversations and allow you to remain exactly. out of it yeah. so that, you know, when you shake hands and the, or the, the, the funds are wired and you shake hands and, and you're moving forward together with that acquirer that, you know, you haven't had too many you know, fist fights. Yeah, and here's the secret, is if you've got a pre-baked deal and you go to an investment banker and say, hey, I think I may have a deal already. Yeah. Oftentimes you can negotiate a lower fee yep. with with the investment banker with respect to that particular transaction. Right, right. So. Righto, righto. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's move into the second section, the bid process and LOI. Okay, what's important, John? <laughs> so the most, the, you know, if, if, if someone's listening to this, I think the one... The most important thing that I hope they take away from this as a seller is to know that your leverage as a seller is greatest right up until you sign the letter of intent. Mm -hmm. Right. Once you sign the letter of intent, you, you've agreed to exclusivity, which means, you know, for six, oftentimes it's about 60, sometimes 90 days, mm -hmm. you've told the buyer, okay, buyer, we have this letter of intent. I'm not going to talk to anyone else. Yeah. We're just exclusively going to negotiate. Mm -hmm. And because the buyer knows that you can't walk away, you know, you're sort of half pregnant. Yeah. Right? Uh -huh. And so um, so know as a seller that once you sign the LOI, your leverage goes way down. Yep. And so negotiate the LOI heavily. Yeah. Because that's when you're, you know, before you sign that strongest. thing, you, that's when you're the strongest. Right? And so there's different approaches to sort of um, how heavily to negotiate an LOI. Mm -hmm. As a seller... I would encourage people really, I mean, if there's sticky issues, if there's employment issues that you want to talk about after close, if there's uh, indemnification related, you know, I would I would negotiate all that stuff. We can talk about what those things mean in a second. Mm -hmm. But I would negotiate all those things in in uh, in the letter of intent. Um, other considerations may be, um, is this an asset deal mm -hmm. or a stock deal? From a seller's standpoint, I don't want to say universally because it may not be universally, but the large percentage of sellers are better off from a tax standpoint mm -hmm. with a stock sale. Mm -hmm. The exact opposite is true for the buyer. The buyer is almost always better off uh, from a tax standpoint with an asset purchase. Mm -hmm. and that's because they, uh, they can mark up the value of the assets they're buying and then depreciate them. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so that's you know that's a negotiation. Hmm. Oftentimes it depends on hey who has leverage here, yeah. running whether it's an asset deal or a stock deal. There's other distinctions between an asset deal and a stock deal as well. If it's an asset deal, the buyer will say hey we're only assuming these couple of liabilities with the business. Yeah. If it's a stock deal, you're buying the company, the whole kit and caboodle, yep. and whatever liabilities, whether known or unknown, that exist within that company, um, become the buyer's issue, mm-hmm. subject to the terms of the purchase agreement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, from a seller standpoint, hey, a stock deal is great. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, from a buyer standpoint, an asset purchase uh, is better. Um, one one other thing to think about is oftentimes if it's a financial buyer, and by financial buyer I mean private equity firm, for example, oftentimes they're going to want the management team to roll over, meaning they're going to want the management team to be a part of the successor entity, and oftentimes they want those people to have some equity Mm -hmm. in the successor company. Sure. One of the most important things that your lawyer can do for you Mm -hmm. as a seller is structure the transaction in a way that you're not paying tax on the rollover equity component of the transaction. Right. Right. So if 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 you're getting a hundred dollars worth of consideration, eighty mm-hmm. of which is cash and twenty of which is is uh, rollover equity in the new surviving company, it's important to structure the transaction so you're only getting taxed initially on the eighty-dollar cash consideration you mm-hmm. receive, and that you're deferring the tax on the 20% rollover until there's a sale of yeah, the sure. successor company. Right. right. And so that does sometimes require some some legal and tax structuring. Yeah. But it's possible. Right. So that's you know that's one thing in the LOI just to sort of keep in the back of your head. Okay. And uh, you know let's talk about buyers, right? You know, it's easy that my my uh, you've heard the phrase buyers are liars, right? So how do you validate and verify that this is a serious buyer? You know, what, what do you recommend, John? You know, if it's a strategic buyer, a private equity firm, oftentimes they'll have other companies um, that they've bought, mm-hmm. and you can try to talk to, to, the, to the founders of the companies sure. that were purchased by them, mm-hmm. right? I think asking around and sort of talking to other folks and sort of gleaning their experience mm-hmm. is, is really... This is a valuable. this is the due diligence process. Often people hear that term and they think it's the responsibility of the buyer to you know due diligence first with the buyer's process. Yeah. But I, you know we always encourage our teams even when they're coming into the program to do due diligence on us, mm-hmm. right? Like make mm-hmm. sure this is a good fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's 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 very important. I mean this is a big decision that you are. The buyer is credible. They don't have anything nasty in their background that you should be aware of, and that they have the funds to it, make it go. Exactly, and even to take it further than that, would I want to work with the, for this person? Yeah, you know I, that's a transition that a lot of founders aren't used to. Yeah, because oftentimes they are the CEO, the mm-hmm. COO, the CFO, the chief technology officer, and they are sort of calling their own shots. Mm-hmm. And you have to make sure that there's that there's a relationship with mm-hmm. the buyer mm-hmm. such that you can say, hey, you know what? I can work with these people. You know, if you're if you're rolling over equity in a transaction, it's gonna be a minority interest. Mm-hmm. You will be subject to the buyer's board of directors. Sure. Um, 
And so you're going to be, you know, even though you may entitled be CEO of the mm-hmm. sur- surviving company, you're not, you know, you're not calling the shots at, mm-hmm. the, at a high level. You're sort of still answering to the buyer. And so, you know, is that is that something? And and do you get along with the buyer well enough to sort of be in that s- relationship? Yeah, I think it's an important question to ask. Yeah. All right. So um, primary LOI issues. Let's list these out, right? Okay. Yep. Exclusivity, uh, timetable. Um, Consideration stock versus cash, timing of the payments. Talk about that, John, uh, uh, the timing of the payments. Yeah, a lot of times buyers will try to hold back or escrow mm-hmm. some portion of the deal consideration. Sure. Um, and, and that money that they're holding back or escrowing is used to can be used to indemnify the buyer mm-hmm. in the event there's a breach of the representations and warranties in the purchase agreement. And the rep, for everybody, the reps and warranties are? What are the, they are affirmative factual statements about the business mm-hmm. as of the closing date. So give me an example. So um, oftentimes there's a financial statement rep. Mm-hmm. Where we say, look, the financial statements of the, of the company as of these particular dates are true and correct in all material respects. And then if it happened, you know, if, if it turns out after the close that the buyer finds out that the financial statements that you repped to mm-hmm. were not true and correct, mm-hmm. then the buyer would have a, an indemnification claim mm-hmm. against the seller mm-hmm. because they breached that rep and presumably suffered some kind of economic loss as a result of the breach. So they take that money off the... From the escrow, from or, the from escrow. The, or from the holdback. Yeah. Right? And so as a seller, you're incented to try to minimize sure. the amount of consideration that's escrowed or held back. I will tell you that, uh, and so that's something that you should negotiate in your letter of intent. Mm-hmm. Say, hey, you know what? Um, you can only hold back or escrow five, seven percent of the deal sure. consideration. That yeah. would be a that would be a a good deal from the seller standpoint. The buyer is going to say, no, no, no. We want you to escrow. We want to escrow twelve or fifteen percent. Yeah. Sometimes, and that's higher than mm-hmm. what we typically see. And so, sort of, what, you know, that sweet spot is something that should be negotiated. I think. Um, you know, speaking about reps and warranties, um, in a purchase agreement, there will be, there can be 30, 40 pages mm-hmm. of reps and warranties. Again, I talked about financial statements. Other reps and warranties could be about, you know, that we've paid our taxes on time, mm-hmm. that we comply with em- employee benefits related issues, yeah, sure. that we have no environmental issues, um, that there's no ongoing active litigation. Right. Uh, you know, the, sort of the whole gamut of, of, it, of it's the like company. eliminate the surprises. Yeah, right. Exactly. They're trying to eliminate, manage the surprises that uh, they they come up. You, you know, it happens. But um, by making commitment as a seller to say that they are these are not issues, right? Um, obviously, gives everybody a little more confidence yeah. to move forward. And yeah. an important part of the deal. Yeah. And and one of the you know one of the other really important jobs of a lawyer is to try to minimize your indemnification as a seller. That you try to minimize your indemnification obligations. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that oftentimes gets negotiated are um, baskets, or you essentially telling the buyer, "You buyer can't come after me, the seller, until you've suffered X dollars of loss." Right. Because I don't want to get nickel and dimed here. And you're doing a bunch of diligence as the mm-hmm. buyer, and you yeah. should bear some responsibility for your diligence, right? Uh, and so, sort of determining what's th- that's called a basket. Okay. What what amount do you need? Do you need to suffer, what, what amount of losses do you need to suffer as a buyer before you can collect? Got it. Another thing that should be negotiated at the LOI stage is what's the cap? Mm-hmm. What's the maximum amount the buyer can come after the seller for mm-hmm. in the event of a catastrophic 
indemnification claim. You know, there may be there may be an, a rep or warranty regarding, hey, the, the seller's technology doesn't infringe any other party's intellectual property. Sure. Well, it's that's something that as a seller you may think, but you don't 100% know that mm-hmm. you're not infringing. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out uh, after close that there's a giant infringement suit mm-hmm. brought against the technology as it was delivered on close. Um, that could be a catastrophic claim. Yeah. And so it's important to try to limit, okay, again, as the buyer, the buyer needs to bear some responsibility for their diligence, and mm-hmm. the seller shouldn't have to bear all the unknown risk. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you say, hey, look, buyer, you can come after us, but the most you can get from us is 20% of the deal consideration. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so negotiating some of those caps and baskets is a really important part of the LOI. And again, it speaks toward why negotiating the LOI before signing the LOI is really critical. There's a theme here. Yes. The LOI. Yeah. Um, really quickly, earnouts, you know, it's so common um, because it's 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 a it's an easy bridge for someone to propose on the valuations between the uh, expectations between the buyer and the seller. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, I've, I've had one experience where we had a sold a company and it was a four-year earnout mm-hmm. with a one-year uh, threshold that accelerated the entire earnout. So okay. if you hit a certain mm-hmm. certain number on the board, you know mm-hmm. you you got the whole earnout amount in that first year. Mm-hmm. Are, are there any you know is that common or you know other ways you can sort of manage that yeah. or the, the risk of the earnout as a seller? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, th- there are a bunch of things that you can do to try to give to to make the buy. You know, one of the things you could do is you could have a covenant that says, hey. The buyer has to maintain sales and staffing levels for the business, at, at least what it was when we closed the deal. Right? Buyers mm-hmm. don't like to, to agree to that kind of thing because they don't they want to be able to run the business sure. now that they've yeah. hey we paid we for this it. business we sh- we own yeah. it but but you know you can negotiate those kind of covenants. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's easier to get a buyer to agree to say look you cannot the buyer cannot take any action the primary purpose of which is to avoid having to pay on the earn out. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that we get m- almost all the time, sure. Uh, as far as co- earnout covenants, but you, you know, you can you can say, hey, uh, if if the if the CEO of the company, the founder, gets fired, the earnout accelerates, right? Because, you know, and so there's all sorts of ways and protections that you can try to build in. Good stuff. If you if you are sort of in in sort of that earnout realm. What else we got here on the uh, primary LOI issues we want to talk about? <clears throat> Yeah, I think we've talked about most of them. I think uh, thinking about your employment terms mm-hmm. post close yeah. is important. Again, I we talked about this earlier, but you're you're even if you are the seller and you're going to be named the CEO of the company, mm-hmm. or the successor company, if you're rolling over equity, um, you're still going to be answering to a board. Mm-hmm. Or if you sell 100% of the company and the company uh, the buyer says, hey, we want you to come work for us, mm-hmm. that's great. But now you're working for somebody else. And so get an employment agreement in place that includes the compensation that you expect, includes severance, includes sort of the, the expectation. Sometimes sellers will ask, the, uh, the buyer will ask the seller to become a consultant for the business mm-hmm. for some period of time after close, you know, mm-hmm. to help, help transition the business. Mm-hmm. And so get a consulting agreement in place that specifies, hey, I'm going to spend 10 hours, 10 hours a week or 20 hours a month or whatever the right time is, and here's what I'm going to get paid. And if you ask me to work more than that, you're going to have to pay me more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, think about what is life, what does the world look like after the sale right. and how do I want it to look like and what do I want my status and position to be, uh, if, if it, you know, with the buyer, if, 
if anything. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's, you know, I was going to ask you a question. What percentage of uh, CEOs that sell their businesses stay on uh, in that business after five years? Not, I I mean, in my experience, not a lot. Pretty low. Yeah. 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 Uh, and that may be because, uh, you know, if it's a f- financial buyer, oftentimes they're going to try to flip the company within three to five years anyway. But I think more likely is uh, there's, you know, a lot of founders and CEOs like to be founders. Right, right. Uh, it just uh, they don't it, they don't fit in the new paradigm. <laughs> yeah, do exactly. Yeah, exactly. no, that's been my experience as well. And uh, very rarely do you find a CEO that continues on uh, for a prolonged period. Yeah. I think one of the, the sort of uh, case studies is. Uh, uh, Gary Hirschberg, Gary Hirschberg with Stonyfield Farms, okay. acquired by Danone and uh, stayed on and has stayed on for so long. long. Really amazing. He's a special case and worth uh, reading about if you're an entrepreneur about making change in a large organization and being, you know, really really impressive what he's done. So um, let's uh, let's uh, I want to say thank you, John. We're coming and talking about this a bit more. Uh, this has been, I think, uh, really a great overview of the process from the legal perspective, um, which is, as I said before, uh, the people that are doing probably the most work here on the execution. Everything else is, you know, uh, softer stuff. Uh, but um, you know, my experience again uh, with these exits and sales and M and A is that a good lawyer. Uh, can make a deal for you or, um, you know, it can keep you from screwing up and uh, is a key, key member of the team. So um, I want to thank you, John, for your time and, uh, you know, your, uh, your, your, your guidance uh, for our teams at Canopy Boulder and Canopy has been excellent and um, I really treasure that help. So thank you. Thank you very much. If you liked uh, what you heard today, uh, make sure that you give us a review. Uh, follow, share, give us a good rating, and uh, every bit helps us to bring even uh, more content, more interesting insights about entrepreneurship and investing uh, to you. So uh, thank you very much, John. Thank you. Now for the disclaimers. Please do not take any information from the Canopy Boulder podcast or its guests as investment advice. Be sure to contact your licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. So thank you for listening and please join us for another Canopy Boulder podcast episode coming to you soon.